There are people who will talk louder to me, or worse yet, won't talk to me at all. The classic waiter who says, you know, what will he be having? Ask me. It does still happen. Welcome to the Book Society Podcast. My guest today is Ben Matlin. He is a writer, editor, essayist in the great city of Los Angeles. He is the senior writer at Fictional Advisor Magazine. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR's Morning Edition, CNN.com, the LA Times, Vox, the Chicago Tribune, USA Today, Newsweek, and Self, and many others. You get the idea. He's very widely read, very widely published. You can also catch him at the Mark Taper Forum. He also wrote a TV show called Biker Mice from Mars, which I am unaware of. One episode. (laughs) (laughs) One episode. All right. It still counts. He graduated with honors from a little outfit known as Harvard University, and he has published several books in sickness and in health, love, disability, and a quest to understand the perils and pleasures of interabled romance. He also wrote a book called Miracle Boy Grows Up, How the Disability Rights Revolution Saved My Sanity, and his most recent book, Disability Pride, Dispatches from a Post-ADA World, from Beacon Press. I've read it. You should all check it out. The book that Ben Matlin chose for us to read today is Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Pipezna Samrasina, and that's from Arsenal Pulp Press, came out in 2018. This book is actually referenced in Ben's book, and we're going to talk about it. So... Ben Matlin, welcome to the show. And let me ask you the first question we ask everyone, which is, why did you pick this book? (laughs) It's funny, actually, Leah has a new book out, brand new. I have not gotten to read it yet, but I look forward to it. She, I think I can say she, sometimes she uses they. It's a real thought leader, I think, particularly in the disability justice movement which was kind of eye-opening for me. I'm an old guy, and I'm kind of a veteran of the old disability rights movement that worked to get the ADA passed 32 years ago. For the listeners who aren't embroiled in this, that's the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's the reason we have handicapped parking spaces, the reason we have ramps into buildings. Right, 1990, and many other things. It gave disabled people the same civil rights protections as other other minorities. Put it another way, when I was younger, it was legal to discriminate against me and people like me. I was not on the front lines of the movement. I was kind of in the background. I wrote op-ed essays for the paper, and I went through a few meetings to talk about why the ADA was so important. But you know, then what? Your rights and is that it? Are all our troubles behind us? I got married. I had kids. I kind of moved away from the movement and the community of disabled people. While I was away, really a new generation came of age, and one of the big things I learned about in writing my book, and that Leah explains so well in care work, is this idea of disability justice. Now, I'm not the 
best person to explain it because I'm not sort of part of it, really. And they're perfectly capable of speaking for themselves. But as I understand it, and I really kind of struggled to, you know, when I first heard the term disability justice, I thought it was just kind of a new young person's word for disability rights. I was wrong. Uh, although I think a lot of people have that misconception. You see it used a lot, kind of incorrectly. There were a list of principles that disability justice champions identify with. And as I understand it, it's saying the laws, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, can only do so much, can only go so far. I mean, they're a great foundation, but there are a lot of cracks, particularly the intersectional issues facing people who are disabled and black, brown, queer, et cetera, et cetera. That they face things that the ADA really didn't even think about. Leah's book also helped me understand, well, the anti-capitalist nature of disability justice. Why are we brought up in this country with this idea that you have to do and achieve and justify your existence by making money, I guess, that a lot of people can't do that or just aren't cut out for it. And they count too, you know, by virtue of being human beings. And part of the wisdom, I think, that disability justice in general, and Leah in particular, brings is really the power of disabled people who look after one another, who care for one another, who can be actively involved lying in your bed if that's where you have to be, partly because of technology. But, you know, people check in on each other as I understand it, part of disability justice is about this sort of community building, I mean, these safe spaces for disabled people to be disabled and not have to pretend or feel they have to achieve something to justify themselves. I think Rhea's book makes that as clear and as moving as any explanation I've encountered. I would agree with that. I think it's important to back up for the listeners who are not familiar with this movement, which is going to be all of them. This is an episode, Ben, that I have been simultaneously looking forward to and dreading. Because this is a social justice movement, I don't want to say the wrong thing. It's also a social justice movement that I don't understand and that I was initiated to, and thank you, that I was initiated to through the books that you recommended and the book that you wrote. This was not something that I was even peripherally aware of. I mean, I thought that the ADA was a building code. <laughs> really, I had no idea. Yeah, people don't know. And knowing more about it, I mean, just being aware of it has made me sort of see it in more places that I never would have looked and has frankly made me see disabled people in places that I regularly inhabit that I had never noticed. So it has opened up a new world to me, which is interesting and can be painful. I also had some, you know, there are some leaps of justice and some concept creep in Leah's book specifically, that 
were hard for me to swallow. I mean, just talking to my wife, you know, as I read it chapter by chapter, I was like, oh my God, this was so amazing. But also, did you know about this? But also, what the hell could this possibly mean? I took this from your book and I texted my wife as soon as I read it. I said, did you know that before the ADA, a disabled person could come to your store and you could say, I'm sorry, there's nowhere in this city for you to go to the bathroom. Good luck. And that was perfectly legal. I mean, it still happens, but yeah. Yeah, at least it's illegal now though, right? Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, it was just such a big movement to get indoctrinated into in such a short amount of time. But so let's talk about the specific intersectionalities that Leah Lakshmi discusses or that she's adamant that she doesn't represent them, but that she is one of many representatives of this movement. Let me back up and ask you to, if you don't mind, define what ableism is, because I don't think people know. I definitely didn't know. It means a lot of different things. But basically, like racism or sexism, it's prejudice against disabled people. More than that, I guess you'd say, it's an assumption that non-disability is better that everybody should be like non-disabled people, that that's a, a goal or an ideal. There are a lot of forms of it. I guess like any prejudice some comes out in all kinds of ways. Yeah, I, <laughs> the reason that this is turning into a little bit of an awkward interview is that I found that I'm guilty of some of these things, and I didn't know that they were even things one could be guilty of. I mean, a lot of disabled people are too. I mean, there's a whole strand of what we refer to as internalized ableism, kind of a self-hatred, feeling guilty for having needs, for being different. Why should you? Except if something told you you're supposed to be a certain way. But we all have that stuff. It's human. We all have what you described, some form of, I think, wishing that we were better or feeling like we could fix ourselves no matter who we are. But like so many of the world's obstacles, they're probably much larger for people who are disabled. I feel like I'm treading very delicately because I don't really know how to... I don't know too. I'm not easily offended. So. In your work and in your life, are you constantly explaining these things to people in a way that is rudimentary? <laughs> oh, probably all my life. But you get used to it, and less now than it used to be. There are more of us out there, and more people have first-hand or second-hand experience of disability. There is, I think, less explaining to do. Is there something that you wish that people knew about your disability or about disabilities in general without you having to explain it? How much time do you have? <laughs> there are people who will always have been who just get kind of unnatural around me. They can't talk to me like they would talk to somebody else. And there's not much I can do about that. There are situations where I feel very much discounted, you know, treated like a child or a incompetent person happens all the time. Sometimes the worst offenders actually are medical professionals, which surprises people. But, you know, to some doctors, nurses, whatever, you know, I'm a patient. I'm 
an uncured disease instead of a person. That drives me nuts. I grew up in New York, so I used to talk very fast. I've been in L.A. now for many years, and I think maybe that's changed. And I come from a family of mumblers. So often people wouldn't understand me talking, and they would think it was because of my disability. <laughs> that used to sort of crack me up. And you look at my wife and go, what did he say? So I think people do jump to conclusions based on superficial evidence. And I talk about this a bit in my book. Some people think, yeah, it's all about architectural barriers. So like, gee, if we have parking spaces, we're done. We don't have to do anything more to be open to disabled people. That's not all there is to it, you know. But another friend of mine wrote a book called Demystifying Disability because she very much believes that we have to understand each other better. I mean, a lot of disabled folks just get angry. There's really a built-up rage, I think. And that doesn't help either. I understand it, but it is important to communicate. I think all disabled people get tired of putting other people at ease, you know, as if that's our burden. <laughs> but on the other hand, got to get along with people. And you want them to understand you. You have to try to understand where they're coming from, too. It can be tricky. Yeah. Leo Lakshmi talks about the myth of the archetype of the good cripple. You know, the one who doesn't let the disability get them down and that that's what people sort of expect. That's something I learned from this book because I never thought about it. I always assumed that anybody with a disability was always trying to get better. I just assumed that because I wouldn't have known any different. Right. That's the culture. Yeah. The big revelation from this book, which it seems so stupid to say it out loud because it seems so obvious when it's articulated, especially by someone as brilliant as you or as Leah Lakshmi, is that, of course, that's not what every person who has a disability's life is about. Their life is about the same thing that everyone's life is about. Everybody has something in their life that makes it uniquely challenging. And for disabled people, that thing might loom a little bit larger than for other people. But that doesn't mean that it is who they are. One of the really primary tenets of disability rights going back forever is that the problem is not my disability, it's your attitude and the lack of access. Other people are the problem. This is why I had so much trouble with this book is that that is just frankly a hard pill to swallow. And it's not that it's wrong. Saying that the problem is that you're disabled is the same as saying that the problem is the color of someone's skin. It's obviously false. It was still hard for me to hear nonetheless. It wasn't that I was walking around saying, I want to push disabled people out of their wheelchairs. It literally never entered my consciousness. There was a classic poster back in the day of a guy in a wheelchair at the bottom of a flight of steps, I think, to get into a building. It was like, what's wrong here? What's the problem? Is it that he's disabled? Or is it that the only way in the building is up a flight of stairs? It's kind of shift your perspective, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things in my work is just about conventions and how there's this tyranny of conventions over time where 
something just is the way it is for a long enough time. We think that's how it has to be. When you think about a city hall, you think about a building that has these cascading staircases into it, which there's really no reason for that. But that's just the way those buildings look because that's the way the Romans built them. That's not a person in a wheelchair's fault that some architect thinks that's what a civic building should look like. So let me ask you a related question, sort of piggybacking on something you just said about some fatigue from trying to make people comfortable. When you come into a room, what are some things that maybe I would want to do that I shouldn't do? I don't know. Is it just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are people who will talk louder to me or worse yet, won't talk to me at all. The classic waiter who says, you know, what will he be having? Ask me. It does still happen. Do you ever feel like just wearing your Harvard sweatshirt everywhere you go? <laughs> that can backfire. <laughs> you talk about the disability justice movement. Having certain badges of traditional achievement, it can piss people off too. See, I'm a lifer. I was born with my disability, and it's a pretty extensive disability. But I thought I counted. I thought I was entitled to talk about disability stuff. Well, there are people who resent me. What do I know? I'm a white male, cisgender, straight, Harvard-educated, blah, blah, blah. I have had a lot of advantages, a lot of privileges. You know, it's only so far I can understand what people have experienced who haven't had those privileges. And I have to be humble enough to acknowledge that. But somebody said to me, it's in my book toward the end, as the disability community moves forward, we have to think about who will be the public face or faces of the movement. And for a long time, it's been a white man in a wheelchair, often a shock. You know, wheelchair, basketball, tennis, whatever. But, you know, us white men in wheelchairs do not represent the majority of disabled people. So, yeah, there was a time I put my Harvard diploma on the wall so people would see it. And now I'm not a brainless, incompetent child or something. But now I think that could backfire. You know, I think you just put your finger on what my problem was with this book is that it is true, Ben, that there are people who have had it worse than you. It is true. And there are people who currently have it worse than you. And there are advantages that you get from being a cisgendered straight white man. But you are a lifer, as you say, a lifelong disabled person who has managed to go to Harvard to write many books to become an author on a level where nobody would think anything of your work other than this is great work, or they would judge it on its own merit. And that's not an accomplishment that most able-bodied people can muster. And so, yes, it's true that you've had some privileges that other people haven't, but you've also had a lot of obstacles that other people haven't. And there probably are some people that have all the obstacles you have and none of the privileges, but they are such an extreme minority that I think acknowledging that they exist is great, but I don't think that it's important to feel bad that you have succeeded despite all of the obstacles that you faced, just because you haven't faced as many obstacles as someone else. Well, I appreciate that. I do know that with adequate resources, money and other resources, 
you know, a disability can be you know, reduced to an inconvenience. It really makes a huge difference. All the stuff, whether it's a wheelchair or whatever equipment people need or help they need, is damn expensive. And it really is not adequately provided for by Medicaid or Medicality or, or any of that. So it does make a big difference. Yeah, I suppose I could have not done the things I did, but I, what would I have done with myself? Once TV all day, I did what I felt I want to do or ought to do. Maybe if I kind of go on the way back machine, I felt I had to be an overachiever to kind of compensate for low expectations. Maybe. I don't know, it's possible. When I was growing up, my parents always kind of said, you know, you can do anything you want when you grow up. You can be anything you want. Wasn't quite true, but I believed it anyway. I had to do some adjusting as I got older and, you know, couldn't get a job, for instance. Nobody would hire me in the pre-ADA days or for that matter, even after the idea. You had to get kind of a reality check there. But it was still a good message for me growing up because it gave me ambitions and aspirations. And I met people, disabled people, who growing up were sort of told, you're never going to do anything. You know, you're stuck with your parents' house to the day you die. It's pretty depressing. That's a hell of a message to tell a small person. So I did what I thought I could do. I guess I'll take credit for it to a point, but I could not have done it, A, if not for my parents, my upbringing, the resources and the privileges I had access to, and B, if not for the disability activists before me who made it possible. Yeah, I think to take credit for your own life is healthy and good. But of course, you can only take credit for anything to a certain degree. I mean, I could say the same thing about myself. My parents told me when I was growing up that I could do anything that I wanted. And they supported and nurtured me in ways that not everybody gets. That's a huge benefit no matter who you are, and no matter what your circumstances are. I think the biggest problem that I had with care work was not anything to do with the disability rights movement, but it was to do with the extreme importance of different identities and intersectional identities in her worldview as represented by care work. And she couldn't bring someone into the book without talking about where they're from, who their parents were, what their family did, what their ancestors did. And I think one of the beauties of being an adult and one of the beauties of being in America, which is such a country of diverse opinions and diverse people and so many of them is that you get to choose your family and you get to choose who your people are. And so, you know, we might not agree on whatever, but you're still my people and you can't change it. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm not friends with every Puerto Rican. I don't agree with every Puerto Rican. Someone being Puerto Rican is not going to affect my opinion of them other than that I would assume that their grandmothers are good cooks. <laughs> okay. The intersectionalities in the world of the social justice that Leah Lakshmi presents is, I think, antithetical to her goals. That was my biggest problem with this book. I don't know if you feel the same way or if you think I'm being part of the whiz cap. It's not maybe an easy 
message for some people to hear, to read, or to understand. I will acknowledge that in writing my book, those difficult sections for me to write were those that involved people with these strong identity markers. And I felt like if I don't mention them, I'm not representing them the way they want to be represented. But it did often to me felt awkward to say, this person is a half this and half that, born in this place, and you know, who cares? But they care. If that's how they want to be identified, okay, I'm not going to say you can't be identified that way. It is a bit tricky, at least for a privileged geezer my age, to totally understand, you know, like identity politics and why people need you to know their background. But it's enough for me that they do need you to know that. They're proud of their heritage and making a point about you don't assume you know who I am or what my background is. But, you know, really, we should explain it to you herself. I would dare try to speak for her. I mean, I just want to agree with you that, like, I will call someone whatever they want to be called, if that's important to them. I'm not questioning anybody's right to do anything. I'm questioning the usefulness of this tactic in trying to get people to understand your larger message, which is that people with disabilities are valuable, interesting people and should be thought of when people are planning anything. I think that's her message. I could be wrong. And I disagree with her. And maybe I also disagree with you about the evils of capitalism. But that's not a discussion for us to, you know, I mean, we can talk about capitalism if you want. <laughs> I'm not as anti-capitalist as many of those folks are. Hell, I worked for a financial magazine. I had to realize at some point my problem with understanding the disability justice folks like Leah is that I'm not one of them. I'm not supposed to be. I can't be. I'm not a minority. I'm not whatever, you know. It's not for me. But that's okay. I don't have to agree with or identify with all disabled people. Well, I mean, you can still support them. I mean, you support her work by bringing her book onto this podcast. And also you quote her in your own book. I think it's important to realize that you can disagree with someone and that doesn't make them an evil person. And it doesn't mean that you're even at odds. It's just not everyone's going to agree about everything. Mm -hmm. We'll be back next week with Ben Matlin and we're going to discuss his book, Disability Pride. It's going to be great. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and edited and also produced by Santiago Ramones. If you like this podcast, please rate us and review us. It really, really helps the show. It only takes a few seconds, and it's really, really awesome. Hey, do you like hearing about books? I know you do, because you're listening to the Book Society podcast. This episode and so many of the other episodes leading up to and after the Miami Book Fair were brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. These are the authors that are coming together in Miami in 2022, every year from November 13th to November 20th. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair in 2022.
follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. When you come into a room, what can I, as an abled person, do to make you feel welcome and comfortable? Say hello. <laughs> Offer me a drink. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's such an obvious one that it's pretty stupid. What are some things that maybe I would... <laughs> maybe that was the right answer. Just be normal and offer me a drink. <laughs> <laughs> um.